Hello, I'm Will Hitchcock. And I'm Siva Vadianathan. And from the University of Virginia's Deliberative Media Lab, this is Democracy in Danger. Happy New Year, Will. Back at you, Siva. Will, take me back. Uh, do you remember what we were doing a year ago this week? I remember it with amazing clarity. We were teaching an online course mm-hmm. for hundreds of students about, hey, the erosion of democracy in America. Yeah. And then... I rise up for myself and 60 of my colleagues to object to the counting of the electoral ballots from Arizona. While we were teaching the class, the Capitol insurrection happened. Our students were watching it in real time on their phones while we were in the middle of trying to lecture. Yeah, yeah, it was a weird, intense experience. It, it changed the nature of the class we were teaching, and it changed our sense of security and, and, and faith in the future of democracy in this country. Totally. January 6, 2021. Insurrectionists from all across the country, fired up by Donald Trump's relentless big lie about how Joe Biden had somehow stolen the election, showed up with clubs and sticks and bear spray. They assaulted police. They broke into the halls of the Capitol. They started shouting, hang Mike Pence, because they thought he had not stopped the count. That would uh, ensure Biden's win. The whole thing was absolutely horrifying. For me, I think it will always feel a little bit like an older generation recalled the Kennedy assassination or maybe the way we remember 9-11-2001. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. And yet, it's been so difficult to hold these insurrectionists and those who inspired them accountable for what happened that day. So far, the Department of Justice has charged more than 700 rioters out of the thousands who were there that day. And of those, about 50 have been convicted and sentenced. Fewer than half of those are going to face any jail time. Yeah, the House Select Committee on the January 6th attack is doing its own investigation. It's trying to figure out really the role of the president, President Trump, and 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 his administration in fomenting the insurrection. This vote on contempt. Today and of course, inevitably, his allies like Steve Bannon and Mr. former Meadows White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, they are refusing messages. to testify. One text Mr. Meadows received said, "Quote: We are under siege here at the Capitol." I can tell you. Republican leaders have voiced opposition to the committee's work, and they're even treating the insurrection like it was no big deal. You know, if you didn't know the TV footage was a video from January the 6th, you would actually think it was a normal tourist visit. To think about the meaning of January 6th and its significance for our history and our democracy, we've invited two of our favorite past guests back to the show. 
we have New York Times columnist Jamel Bowie with us. And we have Nicole Hemmer, who's a scholar of media, a CNN contributor, and an accomplished podcaster herself. Nikki, Jamel, welcome back to Democracy in Danger. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Well, first, let's touch on the latest developments about the January 6th story and all of the efforts to hold people accountable. What do we know now about the insurrection that we might not have known as it was happening or in the immediate aftermath? Have ongoing investigations revealed anything about whether these actions were orchestrated or how they were inspired? Jamel, what do we know now that we didn't know before? You know, as it was unfolding um, last year, I think the immediate thought for most observers was that this was somewhat spontaneous. But what we've learned in, in the midst of the investigations is, is that it was anything but, uh, that there was a good amount of planning uh, ahead of time. There was a whole memo written by one of then-President Trump's lawyers, advisors, John Eastman, kind of laying out the steps one would take to uh, subvert the presidential election. And we've also learned that as this was unfolding, um, several of the president's close allies in the media um, and in the Republican Party were frantically trying to get him to call it off, uh, and he refused, which is more evidence for the claim that Trump very much knew what was going on and very much was hoping to see it happen. I guess we had the feeling that that was likely, but now we have the... (laughs) I, I don't want to call it a smoking gun, but we, we're starting to have the dots that are being connected. We have the smoking PowerPoint, <laughs> we <have> the weirdly. <laughs> the smoking PowerPoint. Nikki, I want to pick up on the, um, on the, on the, the, you know, the text messages. So you're an expert on right-wing media in particular and its relationship to conservative right-wing politicians. What are political figures on the right as well as the grassroots ideologues What have they been saying about the Capitol riot since it happened? Uh, They have developed a narrative. It's very different from the mainstream narrative that we're beginning to piece together. But what is it and how has it developed over the last year? That's right. Well, the text messages remind us that on the day of the insurrection, there really was a visceral shock in many corners of right-wing media. You also heard it on the, the radio shows and the podcasts as this was unfolding and in the immediate aftermath where there was a, a disavowal of the violence at the Capitol and a suggestion that whoever did this and the uh, disinformation that Antifa or the left was responsible for this, that was circulating immediately. But whoever was responsible for this, they were bad actors and they were bad for democracy. In the year since then, there has been a real course reversal away from that immediate shock. First of all, you hear a lot of commentators on the right saying that it was no big deal, that it has been blown up by Democrats and by liberals in the media to try to tar Trump supporters as insurrectionists. They won't call it an insurrection. In fact, they mock the idea that this was an insurrection. But they also talk about the people who were responsible for January 6th, the Trump supporters who have been investigated, who have been imprisoned and are waiting trial, who have been sentenced as political prisoners, as people who are being persecuted by the American government in what Tucker Carlson in his recent propaganda documentary talked about as the second war on terror, Mm -hmm. except in this case, the people who were being prosecuted were not Islamic extremists, but are everyday average Americans who uh, fell into this 
unrest and violence that was being stirred up by agents provocateur and who are now being imprisoned as a way of the deep state striking back at the Trump administration. So, Jamel, it looks like the elites on the extreme right, from Tucker Carlson to Steve Bannon, are combining the sense of invoking this grievance, right, that the perpetrators are the victims, but also like running out the clock on a Democratic majority, which they hope will disappear in a year. And they're kind of hoping to gum up the system so that the House can't take any meaningful action or have any meaningful televised moments. And meanwhile, at the grassroots, what are we seeing? Like, what are we seeing among Republican activists who might now see that, you know, bum-rushing the Capitol is not necessarily a politically effective way of overturning a legitimate election, that there may be other ways of overturning a legitimate election. So what are we seeing around the country? Well, I think it's worth, before getting to what we're what we're seeing around the country, I think it's worth going back to Democrats in Washington, because I think their action, really lack thereof, has played a big part in shaping their response to all of this on the right and the far right. The Democrats are leading this investigation, but they've been, in my opinion, very reticent to really use the heavy hand of Congress to um, impose some accountability on the relevant actors. We saw this play out with Mark Meadows and his uh, interaction with the House Select Committee uh, with regards to his actions ahead of January 6th and on January 6th. Meadows invoked executive privilege as if somehow, you know, once the somehow the president retains that out of office in some sort of meaningful sense. Uh, Meadows tried as much as he could to evade the committee and instead of immediately taking steps to hold him in contempt, the committee kind of, or Democrats in the House, went through this kind of rigmarole before they made the decision. And I think that the extent to which Democrats in the House have proven to be unwilling to just move quickly to impose whatever sanctions they're able to impose has emboldened figures on the right. And so to that point, right, Looking at swing states where um, in many swing states, I'd say in most swing states, Republicans control the legislature, what you're seeing is the institutional Republican Party in those states embracing, quote unquote, reforms that would essentially allow um, a, a future you know, state legislative majority to follow through on Trump's demand to overturn the results of the election. Um, seizing control of election administration at the local level, creating the groundwork, right, for saying that some sort of nebulous voter fraud means the results must be invalidated, et cetera, et cetera. And so from my perspective, the fallout from January 6th so far for the Republican Party obviously isn't uh, any kinds of recriminations. Instead, it's 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 many actors within the Republican Party seeing January 6th as basically a blueprint, a trial run for something that with the right people and procedures in place, you could actually run again and succeed. So th so they're trying to decentralize what they tried to accomplish in a centralized fashion through Mike Pence on January 6th, 2021. And they're running radicals, dangerous people for secretaries of state and attorneys general around the country. Uh, they're trying to in some states, put control of the election results under the legislature, as in Wisconsin, in other places trying to put it more under the executive branch, right? It's this weird patchwork based on just trying to alter the results of the next two elections uh, in hopes of, of solidifying power and overturning a plebiscite. I mean, it's so naked, right? They're not even hiding it. They're not even lying about it. 
and yet the Democrats are supine, right? Not running top figures for Secretary of State, not raising money for attorneys general races around the country, not waving a flag of emergency, right? So what explains that? I think that's a great question, which is, you know, on the right, there has been a complete amnesia about the terror and the horror of January 6th, an erasure of the precarity of democracy on that day. On the left, among Democrats, that has not been the case. There is a a language and a rhetoric among Democrats that democracy is in danger, um, but there is not the associated action. And I don't know, Jamel, do you have any idea why there's not? Because this is compounding the danger to democracy that Democrats just aren't willing to do what needs to be done. And and it's going to kick them out of office, right? They're going to lose their jobs. Like Even basic political survival doesn't seem to be kicking in here. I think it's a a good and difficult question to try to figure out why um, Democrats have taken the approach they have taken. I mean, my sense is that it's a combination of a bunch of things. The first, and I think this is underrated, is simply that the top leadership of the Democratic Party is old. You know, Joe Biden is approaching 80. Nancy Pelosi is approaching 80. Chuck Schumer is the young whippersnapper of the group, and he, the Senate Majority Leader, and he's 72 years old. Um, Nancy Pelosi's deputies in the House are all in their 70s or pushing 80. Uh, you have to really get down to kind of the leadership of you know various institutional um, organizations like the DNC or the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee or the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee or any of these more obscure organizations before you, you see people who are you know under the age of 60. And I, I bring up their age because they came... Each of these people came of age in a vastly different American politics at a period where the coalitions that formed American politics or formed, you know, both parties were very different. They came of age when the Republican Party was simply, you know, was just very different. And I think some of what's happening is a unstated, but I think their belief in an inevitable return to normalcy. Um, And all one has to do in that environment is you know, govern as best you can, steward the country as best you can, and then eventually the Republicans will kind of right the ship and, and come along the way. I don't think that current Democratic leadership is geared up for the kind of fight that needs to be fought. Right. And I think this is apparent in sort of the hesitation uh, that leadership has, even to make January 6th sort of a paramount national issue to kind of hit on it constantly again and again and again in the way that you'll see Republican leaders often do when they believe that there's an issue to their advantage. Let me let me to to sort of broaden this out. For whatever reason, there seems to be a belief, an implicit belief that Democrats can't actually shape the terms of political conflict, that they have to be reactive. And I think that's that's sort of the issue. And you you could see that Right early on in the way that the second impeachment trial was being prosecuted, that the Senate trial gets held over until after Joe Biden is um, 
is inaugurated. And that sort of slowness and timidity and that sort of deference to business as usual is something that has continued throughout the past year. In fetishizing, say, the filibuster, instead of removing it in order to do things like voting reforms or dealing with the Supreme Court, you are locking in place a set of not just corrupted institutions, but roadblocks to any sort of safeguards for democracy. And that's that's a, a losing proposition for both Democrats and democracy. Early on in Biden's presidency, there were a lot of sort of comparisons and analogies made to FDR. And I think where they, they, they fall apart in a lot of places, but one place where they especially fall apart is that what made FDR FDR to an extent was a recognition that to maintain the status quo of American democracy in a time of crisis means taking radical steps. That when you swing hard in one direction, to swing back to where you were requires much more force than would take um, if you hadn't made that swing in the first place. And I just don't think that the institutional Democratic Party um, recognizes that, or if it does, there is a lack of will, there is a lack of resolve that has played itself out again and again and again uh, over the last year. Can I just shift over to to a question about the media? You're both figures in the media. Jamel, you write for the New York Times as an opinion columnist. Nikki, you're uh, prominent on, on CNN and and in writing for other outlets as well as CNN. We, we've talked a lot on this show about the relationship between democracy and the media. How has the media helped or harmed our ability to grapple with the meaning and consequence of January 6th? I mean, I don't mean that the media is one thing. It's many things. But can you just talk a little bit about your perceptions of, of where the where our national media is and, and the degree to which it's, it's, it's helped sustain a constructive debate about the issues or the degree to which it's blocked that? You know, I, I do think that there has been tremendous reporting and storytelling about January 6th that has been key to us understanding what happened that day that has been so important in uncovering all of those ties, all of that preparation that we talked about at the top of the show. At the same time, there is still this tendency to fall back on those same ideals that Jamel was talking about being present in the Democratic leadership in Congress, this desire for even-handedness and bipartisanship, um, this desire to uphold norms and regular order that is present, at least in some commentary and some reporting about politics today um, in a way that is not helpful because it obscures the radicalism of the Republican Party. I also think that particularly in cable journalism, in television journalism, there is a real challenge because you have flashpoints like January 6th that are grabby and spectacular and draw the eye and draw in viewers. And that kind of danger to democracy is easy to depict and is easy to uh, uh, tell a story about. What's happening right now in state houses is not so easy to uh, infused with the kind of urgency that it demands, right? There aren't big, splashy pictures coming out of the passage of obscure legislation that is going to have real ramifications for the future of American democracy. And so there's a real challenge there of how you continue to keep 
the dangers to democracy as the top story in 2022 when it might not have the same kind of spectacle moments that we saw in 2020 and 2021. Right. I mean, one of the themes that we've uh, explored and uh, and and reinforced on this podcast since the beginning, and Nikki, you were the beginning, you were our first guest on this podcast, has been that in some ways, yeah, democracy is in danger, but democracy is always in danger and always been in danger. So look, isn't it true that throughout American history, there has been a, a significant number of organizations and forces and people who have actively sought to undermine or overthrow democracy. And at times they have made themselves more visible and more vocal. And at times there has been a higher level of toleration for their position. And we just might be in one of those times. Do you see this moment for both of you? Do you see this moment as particularly dangerous, as acutely dangerous in the sweep of American history? I, I see it as acutely dangerous just because we have the situation of a major political party having a significant, if not majority, faction that is just hostile to electoral democracy. There are lots of reasons for that, um, but whatever the reasons, that is what makes this a unique situation. You don't, for as much as you have and have had even mass organizations with a hostility towards electoral democracy, it's never really been one of the two major parties, at least not as a national organization. And that that is different. And I think that makes this, uh, you know, much more of a uh, cause for concern um, because there, does, there don't appear to be any breaks, right? Like, what is the thing that will get Republicans, for lack of a better term, to chill out a little bit? I, I thought, right, that the victory, that Glenn Youngkin's victory in November uh, of last year in the Virginia gubernatorial race might do some of it because Glenn Youngkin wins a Biden plus 10 state mm-hmm. and does it running, you know, for as much as many liberals found the campaign objectionable, won it running a pretty ordinary political campaign. Very good one, a very kind of polished one, but ordinary nonetheless, in conditions where most people had very few barriers to vote. So if the concern among Republicans is that you know, there's no way we're going to be able to win national elections because we're just uh, we're just outnumbered by, you know, the various array of groups we don't really see as legitimate. Glenn Youngkin's win should be evidence that no, actually, you can totally win elections. You just have to work at it. Right. Um, but that wasn't really the reaction, mm. right? Should have winning um, seemed to, if anything, make you know key figures even more agitated about the state of the National Republican Party. So. In the absence of anything within the party to put brakes on this sort of turn against electoral democracy, it's hard to see the future in which, you know, this faction of the Republican Party just goes right off the ledge, just like just pulls the trigger on whatever plan Trump at least has in mind. And you're right, Siva, that there is a history in the United States of democracy being in danger, democracy being overthrown. We saw it, um, and Jamel is more familiar with this period than I am, in the last third of the 19th century, you had everything up to and including a coup in Wilmington, North Carolina, where rightfully elected biracial government was forced out of office at gunpoint in order to install um, the other party and in order to begin the reign of um, disenfranchisement and Jim Crow rule. But the lesson to take from that is not, oh, democracy has always been in danger. It's that if you let it go, 
then you could live under a fundamentally undemocratic regime for generations, right? right? Jim Crow is in place for at least 80 years. And that's why you have to fight so hard right now, because once those structures and institutions are put in place, they are very difficult to dislodge. And so history is is a warning, not a salve in this instance. Well, Jamel Bowie, Nicole Hemmer, thank you so much for joining us today on a somewhat dark and dreary Democracy in Danger. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. Yes, thank you for having us. Jamel Bowie writes about history, politics, and culture for The New York Times, and he's a political analyst for CBS. He's also a co-host of the new podcast, Unclear and Present Danger, all about political thrillers of the 1990s. Nicole Hemmer works at the Obama Presidency Oral History Project of Columbia University, where she's an associate researcher. She co-hosts the podcast, Past Present. You can also listen to Nikki on our season two finale, WTF GOP, and on our very first episode, Illiberal Media. Democracy in Danger is part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to find all our sister shows. We'll be right back. Will, uh, Jamel was saying that, you know, Washington right now, the Democrats are filled with leaders who are not wartime conciliaries. And, and, And that's definitely a problem, right? I mean... We're looking out at the country, we're looking out at the world, and we're saying, why aren't the red lights flashing? Why isn't uh, why isn't the Democratic Party, for that matter, why aren't the major editors and producers of America's major media warning about what is a direct and violent and expressed threat to democracy, an emergency? Why, why haven't we made this story number one? You know, it's so interesting to think about Biden and our moment through the prism of history, and in particular with reference to Roosevelt, because Roosevelt leaned into the notion that America was in a state that he said resembled war right. in 1933. He used those words. He, he said, we are facing a crisis that is as grave as if the nation was at war. And Biden has shied away from this. And I think it's partly his personality. It's partly his understanding of of a different kind of political life that he's experienced, sort of backroom deals in the Senate, whereas Roosevelt, in some respects, was a Washington outsider in 1933. But he had a, a belief, he had a knowledge, a sophisticated sense that ideals would never persuade people. Fundamentally, you needed political power. And one way of generating political power was to discipline the Democratic Party behind him so that when he made very radical proposals in the first hundred days about banking and agriculture and all sorts of other uh, crisis uh, fields, he had the Democratic Party in lockstep behind him. Now, mind you, he had a much larger congressional majority than Biden does. But I think what's really notable about Biden in facing the crisis of our times is he's failed miserably to discipline the Democratic Party. It, it, is, it has always been a mess. The Democratic Party has always been filled with regional um, factions that disagree strongly amongst themselves. 
But how did Roosevelt manage to pull them together? I mean, in 1933, the Senate was filled with Joe Manchins. In right. fact, Joe Manchin would be a liberal <laughs> in the Democratic Party in 1933. So, and I think you, you've, you've started to answer your own question, right? So, I mean, Joe Biden is genteel. Joe Biden is of the diplomatic spirit and the lawyerly spirit. That's his temperament. That's his training. That's his experience. That's his life. FDR was a bare-knuckle politician loved by most Americans, despised by many in his own party, resented and feared by people in the other party. And he was not only into disciplining his party, he was into punishing those who crossed him. So that is something that Joe Biden doesn't have, and none of the current leaders of the Democratic Party seem to have. I mean, you know, we might have to look at a Beto O'Rourke in Texas. We might have to look at uh, AOC in New York. And, you know, this it isn't just about the Democratic Party or leaders. It's about all of us at every segment, the, the scholars. It's about university presidents. It's about columnists for major, major outlets. It's about talk show hosts. It's about corporate leaders, right? We need corporate leaders standing up saying, this is really bad here. Like, we are entertaining a Nazi agenda in significant parts of this country, and we won't stand for it. We saw corporate leaders stand up in Georgia. We've seen them stand up in Texas. It would be great if there were a much louder pronouncement that went beyond individual issues, right? But we're just not there. You know, Jamel wrote an earlier column in November in which he said Democrats have to, quote, wave the bloody shirt. And what he meant was a reference to post-Civil War America when the Republican Party, uh, which had led the North in the Civil War, basically used the secession crisis to remind voters that the Democratic Party had favored secession, had favored slavery, and that they needed to be kept at bay lest American democracy perish once again. So what Jamel was saying is that today's Democratic Party needs to remind the country that we are at war, that we face a breakup of democracy, and they need to do it in a somewhat demagogic way. Mm. And Joe Biden has and his advisors have veered sharply away from that. Mind you, they have good reason to. They're facing a global pandemic. They're trying to build consensus around some basic public health policies so that they can get the economy started and so they can deliver the bacon that their voters want. I understand that. But I think it's short-sighted in some sense. I think the Democratic leadership must lean into the notion of a national emergency. They have to do it with greater urgency. And if it takes waving the bloody shirt, if it takes waving the memory of January 6, 2021, when the Capitol was literally taken hostage by domestic terrorists, then I say go for it. That does it for this special episode of Democracy in Danger. We'll keep dropping some past episodes into your feed as we gear up for our next season coming up in February. So who do you want us to talk to? What threats to democracy do you think are the most serious? Feel free to suggest some new show topics. Shoot us a tweet at DND Podcast. That's D-I-N-D Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast app. And of course, leave us a review. You can now also find us on Amazon Music and visit dindanger.org to read up on all of our episodes and guests. Democracy in Danger is produced by Robert Armengol with help from Jennifer Ludovici. Sydney Halliman edits the show. Our interns are Denzel Mitchell, Jane Frankel, and Ellie Bashkow. 
Support comes from the University of Virginia's Democracy Initiative and from the College of Arts and Sciences. The show is a project of UVA's Deliberative Media Lab. We're distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective of WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. I'm Siva Vaidyanathan. And I'm Will Hitchcock, and we'll see you soon in season four.